It is the middle ground between light and shadow, between science and superstition, and it lies between the pit of man's fears and the summit of his knowledge. This is Time Enough Podcast. Welcome to Time Enough Podcast. It's where we delve into episodes of the Twilight Zone and beyond. This is Matt here. Uh, as as far as we're recording, we're doing a twofer. Uh, Dorian Bowen's back. Hi, Dorian. Hello. Um, of course, you you do lots of film archival stuff, and uh, you you know all the black and white images quite well. So mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, back in the day, I I know that we put way too much analysis on all the screwball comedies of the thirties. So, you know, uh, no such thing, no such thing as too much analysis or too many viewings. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Whereas this, this one doesn't really have any screwball at all today. So we're kind of doing the opposite. It's in the wrong decade. There's nothing screwball about two, uh, which is the first season, the first season, the first episode of season three of the twilight zone. Um, the first season, I can't talk today. The first episodes of season one and two, of course, were like basically one act, one actor shows. So now we're up to two. Uh, yeah, I don't know why that, that it's just, it should have been last season, I guess, when they did that, but that's not what they did. So let me do a bit of the trivia here. Original air date was September 15th, 1961. This is a Montgomery Pittman jam he wrote and directed the thing. He also helmed some episodes of Maverick and the Rifleman. Charles Bronson played Man, and you most likely know this man. He was a prime character actor in films such as The Magnificent Seven, The Great Escape, and The Dirty Dozen, and he fully Bronsoned out in the later Death Wish series. Elizabeth Montgomery played Woman, She was the daughter of some dude named Robert. Her career Mm -hmm. has plenty of highlights. The last one acting on Batman, the animated series of voice acting on Batman, the animated series. But she earned her place in the zeitgeist playing Samantha Stevens on Bewitched. We've got an original score for this one. Van Cleave composed this one. And he also served his services for the films Robin, uh, Robinson Caruso on Mars and White Christmas. He'd previously done a fair amount of top tier big banging, big banding. Okay. I have several typos in my uh, trivia last night. I guess I was probably typing while hunched back in my chair, you know. <laughs> <laughs> Should check my own notes before I read them. Let me bop onto the screen, the prologue, if you could give us a quick reading on that. This is a jungle, a monument built by nature, honoring disuse, commemorating a few years of nature being left to its own devices. But it's another kind of jungle, a kind that comes in the aftermath of man's battles against himself. Hardly an important battle, not a Gettysburg or a Marne or an Iwo Jima, more like one insignificant corner patch in the crazy quilt of combat but it was enough to end the existence of this little city. It's been five years since a human being walked these streets. This is the first day of the sixth year 
as man used to measure time. The time, perhaps 100 years from now or sooner, or perhaps it's already happened two million years ago. The place, the signposts are in English so that we might read them more easily, but the place is the twilight zone. All right. Six years in a twilight zone. That sounds like fun. So this episode for me, I guess with the the actors involved, I just have like dissonance with both watching both um, Bronson and Montgomery in this one. Not not that they're bad or anything. I'm just like Bronson. He was never that young. He's Death Wish four. You know, not even one, two, and three. My Bronson is straight to Death Wish four. You know, where he's like <laughs> all like way too old to be doing that. He Fair has enough. that old face already. I mean, it's you see it in there. He's pretty unmistakable. He is, but it's just like him not actually being old is is jarring for me. And then, yeah, you know, Elizabeth Montgomery uh, with dark hair also throws me off a little bit. That is the thing, though. That happened in the late 50s. So 61 puts us like about four years before Bewitch starts. And of course, everybody knows her as blonde before and after. But I know for a fact that she had a brunette period because Dominic Dunn published a book in 1999 called The Way We Lived Then. And one of Dunn's first jobs in television was working for Robert Montgomery in for the show. He was a stage manager, Robert Montgomery Presents. And so he became friends with the whole family and there are lots of photos of her as a brunette in there. Um, and that's also the period where she was married to Gay Young. So there was definitely a period of time for brunette, um, although it isn't what we're used to seeing her as. And then she's kind of got the look, you know, of like a um, late 60s, like kind of militant or something, which is kind of cool. Like this is a few years early because she's got, you know, she's got the boots, but like a, well, then eventually she's wearing a dress, right? So it's just kind of mm -hmm. a, an interesting precursor Which, to her look. She is a soldier. I mean, it seems like she has this distinctive patch that they focus on on the back of her uniform. Um, she's got that pistol holster, which doesn't have a pistol. It has her comb and her bobby pins and her compact. But the patch is sort of this like two ovals overlapping. It looks sort of like a, an atom. So, you know, and, and she speaks Russian. The, her one word of dialogue is in Russian. So it, it's interesting that it's not supposed to be a particular place or time, but that, you know, her, she is a, a Russian speaker. Right. Right. So, and, and that, and you know, Bronson basically looks like a, an urban cowboy more or less, which makes sense for 1961 television. Um, I suppose. I read that the uniform that he's wearing is probably a leftover uniform um, of, from a Confederate film. So those that sort of swirling pattern that he has on his sleeves is supposedly modeled after a Confederate uniform. Yeah, I mean, I guess they would have had to put like a lot of thought into the uniforms because they, they're just using the basic back. They got two actors. They're, they've just scuffed up the back line a little bit. So you can really focus on like how these people are going to look in this episode. So mm -hmm. um, whereas some episodes like you can put a suit on them, right? <laughs> and, and that does the trick. I'm, I'm trying to think of what would be the, I guess the version of this now, well, the, the unfortunately the real version of this now is going to be probably like a few cities in Ukraine or something, but I am mm -hmm. thinking of the abandoned cities that, that have been on the published pu uh, public consciousness, which would be um, Priapat, you know, next to Chernobyl. And, uh, mm -hmm. and I think they're finally starting to kind of creep back into the uh, coastal cities in Fukushima. I, I can't off the top of my head remember what the names were, but I, I did see a report like on NHK uh, 
you know, Japan national TV where with people going into the old city center that has been abandoned for well more than six years. It's been 12 years and, you know, has a similar look to this, except the signs are not in English or in Japanese. Uh, but I was just thinking, watch this episode. This looks really similar to the news report of the people that went into the uh, Fukushima towns just like, you know, uh, a few months ago. Because hmm. you see Priapat, and, and that's all the like, you see all the weird, like, kind. well, no, I should say weird, the, the unfamiliar kind of Soviet trappings, whereas... For me, living in Japan so long, of course, this looks like a perfectly normal, overgrown town now. Uh, to an American, it still might look a little a little weird, but it would it would look closer because you got you know fast food and laundromats. So, <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, yeah, uh, urban explorers—that's a big thing. You know, uh, you'll find YouTube videos of people going to like old malls or theme parks and get getting blown away. Oh my God, this is where the Knights in White sat and the trip ride used to be, man. <laughs> they kind of overdo it on the uh overdo it on the YouTube video sometimes. But 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 it's kind of fun. So <laughs> but this was very cost effective because they were just stomping around the the MGM back lot. So how how did you feel about this being a pretty silent episode? Not so, so much as the invaders, which literally has no well almost no talking at all or um what's well yeah the the king nine and where is everybody had a single actor who couldn't shut up right so now we got two <laughs> who, who won't talk <laughs> i liked it i like you know that's that script is a lot more complicated when you're describing the the emotions and the the movements of the performers as opposed to strictly dialogue so i i enjoyed that i thought that was a, a thoughtful way to present it yeah, and I'm also trying to think of how much post-apocalyptic sort of media, or especially uh, movies, we had in 1961. Um, there's Shape of Things to Come, or Things to Come, or whatever it was in the 30s, which kind of gets to that, the British production, I mm -hmm. think it was 38, 39, has a bit of this vibe when they show the, uh, you know, the 50 years down the line city that the 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 scientists basically have to come and save uh, is, is mm -hmm. sort of along these lines. That's interesting because it has a lot more people in it. Um, the other one that comes to mind is on the beach, which I don't know <laughs> if that, if the, I, I think maybe in 61, they, the book was out, but the movie wasn't or something. Mm -hmm. That's a 62. So it's very close in time. Yeah. So, and then both of them just slightly predating the Cuban missile crisis. So yeah, <laughs> at a different mm -hmm. time, I guess. The only thing I can think of is the the time machine, but that goes much further. It goes to a, a different future that's not quite what we're talking about. But when the beach is a great example. Yeah, six years in a in a few million are definitely gonna get you some different results there. <laughs> <laughs> but um what do you have in your notes? Um, let's see. Well, of course, every time there was a marquee or a newspaper headline. And I was writing that down. So, you know, the, the movie theater marquee is advertising war news, actual films of enemy foot troops landing. And, you know, you see through the media, the sort of um, the acceleration, is that the right word, of um, things getting more serious. So the newspaper talks about the big bomb. It talks about how it was, you know, vital to evacuate the city at that point. Um, he looks at Universe magazine at some point. I love that, you know, it was very vague what the dates were and they tried to make it seem like this very universal city. And then they have movie posters 
for furlough romance <laughs> at the at the theater. Um, and I, this is a total aside, but you know, I think IMDb says that the person on that poster is Shirley Temple, and I can kind of see it. But I thought they were sort of going for more kind of generic individuals, like they were, you know, making this as 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 widespread as possible. Is that the right word? What am I thinking? Uh, as generic as possible. That seems kind of mean, but that that makes sense. I, actually, I was this is this is really deep in the weeds, but um themed posters at Disneyland, which were originally made for um it, it was, you know, one of their Hollywood section and they had like a relatively generic um actor, America's favorite leading man, America's favorite leading lady, but it was like it was like advertising toilet paper, right? So it it was kind of a joke. But then the sponsorship ended, so they took out that reference. So now you just have these baffling generic posters that don't make any, <laughs> that don't actually make any sense. And so you know, it's it's like a mind paradox to think about it if you if you don't know where they originally came from. So that's kind of fun, but um, another two people. So, so I guess we should talk about how you know it begins with just the woman, and she's looking around, and you know she she sort of seems like she's just come upon this town. She's exploring. She's seeing. You know, she sees the the dress in the window which comes back later but then she sees that there's a restaurant goes into there and finds food and then as soon as she's trying to you know uh get some food uh Bronson appears in the doorway and she immediately starts pelting him with things in defense of herself and he comes in he smacks her on the ground knocks her out and then you know takes her food which is uh chicken legs in a can have you ever seen chicken legs in a can outside of this episode um just yesterday actually i was at the the, the donkey which is a discount store in japan and they, they did have <laughs> they did have yakitori in a can so okay well i'm jealous i'd never seen that before and it looks fantastic they had um, oysters in a can of course yeah there's there's some weird stuff you, you could get in one section of that store so <laughs> i mean yakitori is not that weird but you can you know definitely eat some disturbing things from the sea as well um <laughs> <laughs> there were sad little bird skeletons in the cages of that room. I thought that was very poignant, like whether or not they got blasted with the initial, or it seemed like they didn't, and they just sort of died slowly in the cages. So that was, you know, unnecessarily tragic. But, you know, they say that it's the first day of the sixth year, but the calendar that's on the wall in that first set of the restaurant is February and it's actually the it, it lines up with February 2023. Did you notice that? Okay. Oh, no, no, I didn't catch that. Okay. So it was 1961's calendar, but also happens to work for 2023. So I thought that was kind of cool. Oh yeah. Oh yeah. Okay. Yeah, it's pretty trippy. Sure. Why not? Right? <laughs> it makes it that. very, very real, very immediate. I, you know, they do, but they both have different uniforms. Um, Hers has this strange little patch on the back and his has these, you know, it, it's clear that they were on opposite sides of whatever this, this fight was, whatever this war was that, you know, they, there's an immediate distrust they have of each other, which doesn't get better when they start fighting with each other. But, you know, so what happens next? He steals her food. He goes away. He looks at this dress. He looks at the magazines and the headlines. And then he sort of, you know, has more compassion for her as a female in this situation, goes back, tries to revive her, dumps 
water on her to revive her and then offers her food. And so then it's very perplexing to her what their relationship is because, you know, he was an enemy and then now he's helping her. And so at, from that point on, he, she sort of trails him a little bit. Like he's trying to communicate, he's trying to look around and she's keeping a few steps behind because she doesn't quite know whether she can trust him, but you see the loneliness that they both have and how they, they, are looking for a connection, but they're just so unsure if they can trust each other because they don't speak the same language and they, you know, they're enemies. Yeah, it's like uh, when you hear about them finding, you know, like Japanese pilots that had been on like an island for 20 years after World War II and like didn't know the war was over, you know, uh, right. that kind of mm -hmm. mindset. So, mm -hmm. I mean, how that's the thing. It's like, well, I was told to go point a gun at this person and shoot at them it's been so long it doesn't seem to matter anymore but i, I feel like that's still my last standing order so do i do that <laughs> mm -hmm. and then when after he, he revives her and there's he's trying to you know he tries to initiate communication with her he's like we don't have to be enemies anymore like whatever was then is not now and he says the line there are no more boundaries governments or noble causes and that's really sad but, you know, they find themselves in, you know, without anyone else. And all of that has fallen away. And they're just two individuals that are sort of lost in this, this abyss. With the amount of detail in this episode, they're still surrounded by the propaganda. So whoever city this is, especially, I mean, we don't, if it's Bronson's home side or, or, or um, Montgomery's, right, man or woman's hometown, it's like, is, would the propaganda still affect you if you're surrounded by it or does it look that stupid now it's you know <laughs> well when she so the then there's the scene where they're in the the salon where they're cleaning up and he's shaving and he throws her a towel and she starts to wash up and then when you know she sees that dress and he's trying to you know make this gesture and he's like here take this dress this can be yours now and she goes into change and that's when she sees all the propaganda in that in that office, it's the recruitment office. That's where all that propaganda remains. And so, and then she sort of gets worked up and then he's just minding his own business, waiting for her to change into the dress. And he, she comes out with a gun and she shoots him with that, whatever that laser gun effect was. It's not quite a bullet. It's just sort of zaps him. And then, you know, again, disrupts the trust that they were building. Yeah. I mean, I just... Um, when I was watching him, I noticed like, well, certainly the propaganda is not wearing her down this far into the apocalypse, but I guess it is. It's just like, oh, I remember my original mission now, which just seems a little silly at this point. So, <laughs> Or it was a trigger. I thought it was that she was in enemy land. I thought those were, you know, I think she was seeing those posters and saying, oh, well, that's his job. He's here and he's this destructive for it. It's hard to know whose home it is. And that's another element that makes it, you know, interesting because there's not like one home team. It's they're both sort of alien in this world. He's there to recruit people that show up just in case anyone shows up. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so he's got he's got lots of a good plan for you. So the ending of this one is mildly I don't know. How do we feel about the ending of this one? It seems that they're just kind of, oh, I guess we're hooking up now. <laughs> it's sort of this volley of trust the whole time. And so she shoots him, he, he goes away, and then she feels bad about it. She sort of sits on the ground and sort of is like, well, now what do I do? What do I do now? I sort of got rid of my only friend. And then 
he she makes the gesture to come and find him. So she comes with a vehicle and she comes dressed in that dress with all the guns around, which I love that look. Look, you know, it's like a Western look of like the, the sort of tattered dress. But, you know, she is accepting of that gift. She brings him the vehicle to share. And he has seemed to find some sort of home or, you know, I, it's hard to I think there was a sign outside. I don't remember what it was, but he found food and he found uh, a suit that he was wearing. So he had, he'd, you know, foraged for for food and supplies. And then um, and that seems to be like the 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 olive branch is her bringing that and saying and coming back and saying like hey maybe we can do this together non-verbally of course but so you know and then it ends with this has been a love story about two lonely people who found each other in the twilight zone so it's a it's a little fast it goes through a lot of stages and that distrust doesn't seem like it's just automatically done but there is sort of this nice volley between them and it seems like that final gesture of hers coming back to him is the one that says, all right, maybe we can, maybe we can move along together. And maybe this is the beginning of, of time when we don't have to be alone anymore. Yeah. I, I don't know if we had what, maybe one of them should have been horribly ugly. We see how that works out. Cause she's kind of yeah. like Shay Guevara's manic pixie dream girl. And, you know, a younger Bronson <laughs> is at least ruggedly handsome. So <laughs> Sure, they could have done it a little. They could have done like the enchanted cottage where um, the people are only beautiful in the eyes of each other and not really, you know, objectively beautiful in the world or handsome and rugged in the world. But uh, and that's another thing is her one word is I don't know if I can pronounce it properly, it's Russian and it is pro procrasky or procrans. I saw, I saw I saw you put it in writing. I was like perfectly happy not to try saying it. <laughs> we could just put it in the description, but that that Russian word is the one that she uses to describe the dress. And at the end, it's the one that he says to her when she's wearing the dress. So I think that's another part of, you know, the ceiling of the relationship, or at least the potential of the relationship is that, you know, they, they're both making these sort of tentative steps toward you know, being a companion to one another. So I think that even though she only has one word of dialogue, the fact that that's repeated back to her and that he's able to pick up that that is one thing that he knows she'll understand. I think that's a, a kind of poignant and sweet way to, to, to end it. Yeah, for sure. Um, I guess I will start doing a few of the questions here. The first, of course, uh, being who exactly in this episode went to the Twilight Zone. You only get two choices. <laughs> <laughs> um i'm gonna say the birds on this one i think they they went to the twilight zone as they their their skeletons remain in the cages but you know I just, my... got, I just got a twitter thread or something out if people just suddenly disappear i think it's, it's 10 days for all the domesticated animals to be dead <laughs> so That's... um Six years in, the ten days, and then six, the uh, less than six years. That's perfectly enough time to become a little bird skeleton. I, it I absolutely is. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I I don't think either of them are. They're they're in uh like again. There's there aren't supernatural elements to this one. This is all man-made destruction. So I don't think of it as particularly trippy uh, on the trippy meter. I think of it as just sort of this cautionary tale that is very grounded in reality and things we have seen and things that we hopefully won't ever see yeah i guess we're jumping around we, we can give a, a, a 
we can think about the triple meter now that's been evoked um I actually, yeah, I was thinking, what what do I want to give this? Because like you said, there's nothing supernatural and there's nothing particularly trippy. It would just be like the propaganda posters and the the weird little newspaper headlines, which uh, that's enough for me to give it a two, I guess. But yeah. Um, the recruitment I, sign on the outside of the recruitment office, by the way, the, the place where she goes to change into the dress but doesn't, um, does have a sign that says men and women of all ages were wanted for the for the war effort. So they needed everybody. Yeah. So all but, ages. Also, uh, uh, how could you not give the episode two a two? I mean, you don't have to. I was just like, <laughs> wonder if that's why I was going with that. <laughs> Maybe that's it. So now that we're like tangling the questions a bit, I guess we're going to go on the page that nobody went into the twilight zone except the birds. Is that what, is that where we're landing? That's my answer. Yeah. I think, you know, none of the characters that we're visiting with are there. It's sort of the rest of the world has left them behind. Exactly. Well, or the rest of the world has passed away. So um, it's, it's very, like, we don't really know what they've been up to for those six years. Have they actually just been by themselves for how long? Two years? Three years? All six of them? I mean, it's kind of hard to figure out. Like, you know, I, I both of them were clearly in the military. So at least they were. And it's behind. unclear if this is just a town they're traveling through. I mean, this could be one small stop on a six-year walkabout of the destroyed areas. So, you know, the fact that... They just took for granted that that water was okay to use or I mean the sealed food I kind of understand that part but you know that that the water thing kind of tripped me out like what you know is that safe like would you put that on your face like what is there any other option (laughs) I guess that's what it comes down to I guess that's a good point yeah so sometimes with the twilight zones I'm like you know it part of the fun is that you do just get this 25 minute window but at the same time you're missing a lot of context as to my normal question two which is now question three which is do they deserve their trip <laughs> i guess they're not going through the twilight zone but i feel like we have to focus on on them for do do they deserve this experience I get it's sort of like, you know, with the obsolete man, like their experience has been thrust upon them. So I think the question is, like, have they done a good job with what they've been handed? And I think that the fact that they went from being two individuals to, you know, finding a sense of humanity in each other makes it a a positive story. I mean, for me me to headcan in this a bit. Oh, you know what? We could just like, let's go ahead and just. Ted Cannon is a straight up sequel to the obsolete man and that both of these were the brown shirt growling people from the obsolete man. They went to war and now we're six years down the line, you know, and you start at this point, they're finally becoming a little bit more deprogrammed. I can, I can buy that. Because um, her, uh, her, especially like you said, she's in the recruitment office. She sees the propaganda and it doesn't, matter if it's the enemy side or her side it's it's still causing an effect on her there's still like that's like the last little amount of brainwashing that she has to like overcome in the situation you know and uh mm-hmm. takes a few shots before for doing that <laughs> well it's fear i mean it, i guess it could be brain, brainwashing but the fear is real that's very visceral so i mean we don't know who was on what side so like to me it was the you know her fear was that he was just waiting for the right moment to destroy her. And that's where her 
sort of impulsive, like, like offense came from and scaring him off. So, but there's more confusion on her side than there was on his side. And I wonder if that has to do with the language barrier because he's talking a lot more. He's trying to communicate with her and she's reluctant to speak. And then it seems like maybe she doesn't because she doesn't have the tools to, to communicate with him. And that's what makes it such an interesting story of the nonverbal communication. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Um, I am wondering, like, with this, and, and also that was a bit of genius in the prologue, just to be like, hey, maybe the signs aren't in English, you know, so we really don't know whose town is because they suggest that you're not actually seeing the correct language on the signs in the prologue, you know. So That's true. That's true. So, so that that is a nice way to really just make it a little bit confusing. So, I mean, hey, could have been a civil war, could both be their town for all we well, okay, the language gap would be a problem there, but. <laughs> no, that's a good point, though. Yeah, I, I actually, I'm going to go ahead and say it probably is a uh, a two political entity situation and not necessarily a civil war because that would make less sense. But that, that can happen in some places for sure. So again, they don't. I guess that's the part of where you don't know where this is either. So or when? Yeah, I I don't. Is this a proper Twilight Zone episode? There's nothing trippy. We have a writer and director who is is not a regular it, it does feel like now this is of course a, produced for the twilight zone and everything but um in season five they're going to grab a french production for occurrence at owl creek and this almost kind of feels like a similar vibe where it's just uh coming from somewhere else like it's it's a little too sci-fi for say an alfred hitchcock presents or something but yeah mm-hmm well, if the well, the last episode was in June and this one is in September, that's not a ton of space in between. So maybe like Sterling just wanted another episode off, like to extend his summer, and then he, like he's gonna come back. You know, maybe it's like a guest star, a guest starring. Um, yeah, yeah. You know. Just, just, you know, we do have three or four other regular writers for Twilight Zone, and this is not one of them, which makes mm-hmm. this a just a bit of an anomaly. I mean, which is an interesting way to look at and an interesting way to start your seasons absolutely yeah that is interesting this should have been season uh, episode two honestly i don't know i I, besides just the uh, yeah episode two should be two i do wonder if the arrival which i've already done the podcast on would make a more sensible season opener but i guess nobody cares what opens the season 1961 that much so (laughs) probably by the third season i mean the maybe this was the, the great this was the right opportunity to to throw something else in there because their following was was so consistent by by then to have two solids and these are long seasons a 29 episode season for the second one and i can't remember how many were in the first one but this is in the days when seasons were not 10 episodes they were you know a lot of work so not that 10 episodes can't be a lot of work but you know what i mean like that was just a different standard of how many episodes would be making up season in early television versus now and Serlan was definitely getting run down by season three so he was very overworked i think i think this is about the point where he spent most of his time on the east coast teaching writing classes and uh you know screaming scripts into his dictaphone and then just flying to the west shooting a bunch of intros and going back to the east coast so <laughs> I, that's interesting. That that might have more of an influence um, than I, I thought to research outside of the, the episode itself. Um, did you have any other big notes on, on your papers? 
Let's see. Um, I'm just going to mention that, you know, this is neither here nor there, but um, Montgomery did get top billing um, and then Bronson got the and, which when you only have two people, you can have one get top billing and one get the end. So it worked out perfectly. But, you know, in terms of where they were in their careers, um, you know, Bronson had a longer career because he had a longer life by about 20 years. But, um, you know, this was this was about a decade into her career. So I thought that was interesting that she got that billing. And then as we discussed in a couple more years, then she would be unbewitched and that would that would be what she would ultimately be probably most known for these days. I mean, this is definitely one of the more like starstruck uh, Twilight Zone episodes. Not not as much as like, oh, that's a Shatner episode, but yeah, it's definitely. <laughs> oh, there's there's two actors we definitely know in this one. Well, at least film geeks know. I I think yeah. everyone knows Charles Bronson, and people know Bewitch. So yeah, people know him. But uh, I don't know if you just shouted uh, Elizabeth Montgomery at someone on the street, they'd pick up on it. But if if you showed them a picture of Bewitch, <laughs> they'd get it. You know, absolutely. <laughs> yeah, I think that that. That's one of the fun things about this episode is seeing two people that you do not see together in any other situation and, and in this story and this time. So, yeah, it was a fun episode. And yeah. All right. Well, anyway, uh, I guess I'll, I'll bring it to an end then and uh, tell the listeners it's Time Enough Podcast on Twitter and Facebook. And you can support us uh, at our Patreon, Podcastio Podcastius, where you get episodes early. I've started doing occasional chats here and there with with some folks there. And you can also hear our other podcasts, such as Matt and Luke's Sci-Fi Sanctuary, The Occult Disney Podcast, Imprisoned in Prison, about the 60s TV show The Prisoner, and some video game stuff with Luke Loves Pokemon, Monster Mash, about Monster Hunter, and the Game Game Show. Woo! Okay, yeah, the, the, the plug has just gotten so long. Yeah. I see. I see where you start to hate yourself when you do it week to week. <laughs> okay. Well, I'm going to go bop around the town and see if I find anybody. There's got to be at least one person out there. <laughs> On the lamb again with the great talker. Here most contact with the people who dwell. Use my wit to escape the colony of hell. Undiscovering all the gold Return everything we were stole Grow back the timber on the hills Kindred spirit now guides our wills um. Respect the ones who gift you their kindness Against our civilizations by this Rebel in the rainforest rooted in sand On dreams we go, 
Undiscovering all the gold Return everything we want so grow back the timber on the hills Future spirit now guides our wills Sandy beach and search for water Follow tracks of campfire smoke To guide us along There's other people to the land they belong On dreams we go Undiscovering all the gold Kindred spirit now guides our wills Great talker